Glad to see you all this morning. It is cold. Why is it still so cold? I thought we lived in Texas. I had ice on my windshield this morning. This is, y'all, this is not okay. I'm done. Okay, so glad that you all braved the weather to be here. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 14 of Luke. Um, we've got a number of really good things going on in the church. Um, one of the things that I wanted you all to be aware of is we just unveiled some incredible stations of the cross. Karen Chaplin, look. Um, incredible stations of the cross in the narthex of the church. And so narthex, for you non-Episcopalians, is the room outside the church, kind of in the back. So it would be like the foyer of the church. And we hung them there. It's really like a sacred art installation. Um, we received these from the TIA collection. It's a private anonymous collector um, who just simply collects art. And they've been sitting at the Biblical Arts Museum for four years in crates. They are so heavy that the Biblical Arts Museum couldn't even hang them up. Each one weighs about 150 pounds, which means that we've got about one ton of bronze now hanging on the wall of the narthex, right? It's, these are, they're incredible. And they were done in a super ancient way. It's called a lost wax method, the way that they were cast. And they're just, they're incredible. And they've got a modern sensibility to them. So they really look great in our space. Um, and Steve, thank you Steve, has brought some of the view books that we printed for you all to see. And so if you all haven't met him, this is Steve Hall. He's our new communications director. Hello. So we've got these books made for us, and each, within the books, each station is given some attention, right? As you flip through, you see a picture of the station and then a description of the station. Sure, thank you. What's amazing about these stations is, is a fewfold. First, it's this beautiful modern sensibility, like I said. It looks great in our space, and it's it's engaging in a really, really great way. The other is that they are big. So these are 30 inches square. They're two and a half feet square. They're really big. And I want you all at some point to just come and look at them, right? Pray on them. We might even take 15 or 20 minutes at some point during Lent or maybe once a week during Lent or maybe to prep for Bible study. You never know and just kind of pray them along the wall. They're, they're really something special. We've got them on loan for 30 years with an extension of 15 years if we want. Um, so, so they'll be here. Um, I also want to note that they're, if they're here for anyone to see at any time. So if you have friends, bring them by to look at them. If you know, uh, for example, like I sent information to my kids' schools because they may want to come, right? So if you know artists, or if you know just faith people of faith, or anybody, they're really kind of incredible. And so take a look here at the narthex of the church. I also have a quick announcement for you. Want to make sure that you all have options for doing mission and outreach work. And if you do so through your own churches, I know some of you have got a church here, which is great. Um, well, I mean, nobody's perfect. Right? Um, but if you, 
Yeah, CC, if you don't go to church. Um, so, but if you want to get engaged in some mission work, one of the really sources of pride of what St. Michael has done for the community is Jubilee Park and Community Center. And Jubilee Park is in Southeast Dallas, near Fair Park. It's a 62 block area that has been completely transformed through the efforts of members of St. Michael and community partners over the last 20 years. And so we are looking for people to read with kids at Jubilee Park, first, second, and third graders, right? It's, they're, they're called um, reading buddies, and all this means is that regularly, whether that's once a week or twice a month or you name it, you can just go over to Jubilee Park at some point after school and read with a kid and help them to become better readers themselves. And so if you are interested in volunteering, Susan Campbell is coordinating this program. And so if you know Susan, reach out to her for more information. If you don't know Susan, find me or find Susan, Susan Kalen, um, after the service. Um, she's got some flyers in the rear of the chapel that you can pick up and take with you in case you're looking for a mission opportunity. Now let's say a prayer and jump in. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful cold day. We ask you to warm our hearts and empty our minds of anything that is weighing us down, that your spirit may fill us up. We can leave this place inspired by your word to transform our lives for the good of those we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week we are jumping into chapter 14. Chapter 14. Thank you. There will be extras of these books at the doors. Please feel free to take them and give them to friends or anything like that to invite them here. We get into chapter 14 today, and chapter 14 continues to build off of chapter 13's kind of Q&A with Jesus. Right? If you remember last week, chapter 13, it was mostly someone asked Jesus a question, Jesus answered the question. Today our activity is a bit more fluid. It's mostly centered around eating. I love Luke. Um, I love to eat. And so what Luke does with food is unlike the rest of the gospel writers. Luke uses scenes of eating very regularly. And mostly that's because we all eat, right? I mean, it's difficult. One of the things that I think is really effective, especially for modern people, is most of us have likely not, say, herded sheep or worked on a farm. Right? And so some of the images in the Bible, although they can make sense, they are also disconnected from our actual experience. But things like a dinner party, we get that, right? We can imagine going to a dinner party, we do it all the time. Or hosting a dinner party, because we do it all the time. And so moments like chapter 14 are really effective for us because we have that kind of experience in our own lives. And so chapter 14 is a really great chapter, and I'm super excited that it's only three parts, not four, because I get more time. So we're going to look at the division of chapter 14 so we know where we are going. Part one is really an setup for the dinner party conversations that we're going to have. And so it's really Jesus and the Pharisees. Pharisees pop their heads up again as examples, really foils, to Jesus' teachings. Then that leads right into the great banquet. 
a story we are likely at least somewhat familiar with. And then finally, the cost of discipleship. That's when things get hard. What's interesting about this chapter is I bet you will find, like I do, as I read through this, I kind of like this part, right? It's kind of good. This middle part of the Great Banquet, you're like, okay, I mean, I, I can be into that. Then we get to cost of discipleship, and it's sort of like, uh, like, you know, maybe I'm not. And so we're going to progressively get more difficult as we go through chapter 14. So let's start with the relatively easier thing. Jesus walks into a dinner party, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. That is the setup for this whole chapter. Jesus is going to a party that is hosted by a Pharisee. So the whole movement, really, of this chapter is within that dinner party. Jesus arrives at the dinner party and he sees a man with dropsy, which I, know, I had no idea what that was before I looked it up. Dropsy is an old school term for fluid. So back in the day, before people could really assess things like liver disease or heart disease or other things, people who had those diseases would often just gain water. And that's really what dropsy is, is the old word for you just have too much fluid in your body. And of course we know that too much fluid in the body can literally drown your organs, right? And you can die from this. And so this is very serious. Jesus sees a man with dropsy, and he says to the Pharisees, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Now, we likely remember this because almost the same thing happened in chapter 13, right? Jesus was in a synagogue healing someone. Now he's at a dinner party about to heal someone. Same question, though. Is it okay to do work on the Sabbath if it is work like healing? So the Pharisees have been watching Jesus. In fact, we get this great line. Luke is not often this clear. But as Jesus approaches the home of the Pharisees, we see that they, they were watching him closely. Catch that line? So these Pharisees are watching him. In a way, you can almost understand this as, I, mean, I, I really understand the way that kind of Jesus might feel in this scene because you've got the establishment of... Seriously? <laughs> that took a long time. Uh, Carolyn was rolling her eyes. So, Jesus in this scene has become almost a... Uh, how do I look at this? He's the new guy, right? He's new on the scene. He is not part of the elite. He's not part of the old neighborhood, right? And they don't really know what to do with him. They want to know him, but it's a want to know him that's almost wondering if he's okay. And it makes me think of when I come into a parish, like when I arrived at St. Michael last fall, there were all of these lovely dinner parties that were thrown to help me meet people in the church, which is so nice and so well intended. But every time I walked into a dinner party, I kind of felt like everyone was watching me closely, right? <laughs> Just like the Pharisees. Because 
they sort of want to like him, but they don't know him yet. And even though maybe somebody said he's doing some good stuff, then they want to see for themselves, right? So this idea of like come and see is really sort of watch you closely, right? And see if, see if you really can play well in the way we want you to play well. And we, of course, know the rest of this story, Jesus does not play well, right? They're not going to like him. But at this point in the story, they almost feel like, you know, keep your enemies closer sort of thing. If Jesus is not doing it exactly the way we want him to, let's bring him even closer to try and control this thing that we don't really like. That is the setup. So Jesus, right out of the gate, says, can you do something on the Sabbath? Like, heal this man with a disease, that's going to kill him, right? I want you to know what dropsy is, because this isn't like a sprained ankle, right? This guy's dead if he's not healed. Now, theoretically, you could say, you're probably not gonna die today, so catch me tomorrow off the Sabbath, and I'll heal you, right? Jesus does not do that. There's an opportunity right now to do something good, and wouldn't you do it? In this scene, Jesus sets up the idea, what would you do on the Sabbath? What would you do to break this unbreakable law? And he says, basically, if you had to save your child's life by doing work on the Sabbath, wouldn't you? Even if you're not technically supposed to. Doesn't that kind of fall into the category of, I'm going to do it and just be forgiven later, right? Of course. The implication is, of course you would do this. So then, if you would save your child, why would God not save his? And so Jesus sets this up before the party even gets going. To say, I'm here for God, right? Whatever it is that you think God has limited you doing, you are not limited when it comes to love, right? That trumps any other kind of law or parameter that you may think God has put around you. Okay. As I said, this part is not terribly difficult for us, right? We're probably all with Jesus here. Then he gets to the dinner party, walks in the door, and he sees that people are kind of positioned in the party in a traditional way, right? If you imagine a very formal dinner party, right? We don't often do this just any day, but you might put yourself, in order to understand this, think of like a wedding reception, right? There is a place to sit. Most people have either been assigned a table or they, they're even, if you're the bride and groom, like, you know where you're going to sit, right? And you kind of sit in concentric rings of importance, right? We've all attended a wedding where we basically don't know those people, right? <laughs> but somebody's friend is, you know, we're kind of connected or whatever. I, if, I, if that's the case, well, I really don't know the bride and groom, but maybe I know the parents or I, I know maybe you know, they're like a friend or a friend sort of thing. I certainly expect to be seated at the back, right? No, no problem. I'm not going to be up near the head table. I'm going to be in the back. 
Now, if I'm the best friend of the groom, do not put me in the back, right? That is not why I'm here, right? Or if it's like my cousin or something like that, maybe the middle, but no farther, right? So we sort of get this idea. Jesus walks in and he sees the, the layering, sort of the circles of influence and importance in the way that the room is structured. And then he has this great teaching, not really a parable, but it's a teaching, right? When you go to a party, don't sit in a place of honor because somebody else may come in that's more important than you. And then you're gonna have to be asked to move down. That's embarrassing. But instead, start at the low place and let the host come and say, oh my gosh, why are you back here? You need to be up here, up front with us, where you're supposed to be. That way, you're exalted, right? You are lifted up. Jesus says all this to begin a rhetorical exercise, ultimately a parable, about the kingdom of God, right? We could read this as just simply etiquette. It's kind of smart, right? I mean, who wouldn't? want someone to come and say, you are much more important than you must think you are, right? That's not a problem, right? That feels good. It's not just etiquette. What Jesus is really setting up, both the healing on the Sabbath, right? Saying, God's going to save his children, just like you would. To moving closer and closer to what will ultimately be this cost of discipleship. If you look at the whole thread of the way that Jesus moves through this chapter, it gets more and more complex and more and more heavy. So this moment now, we've taken two steps in, and pretty much everyone there says, that kind of makes sense, right? Sure, it's great to be lifted up rather than told you're less, you're less important than you think you are. So then he steps forward into this parable of the great banquet. Before we shift, any questions or observations based on this first section? Now we get to the parable of the great banquet. In essence, this parable answers the question, who is welcome into God's kingdom? That's really what Jesus is betting with this parable. So I'm gonna take a quick pause there and say, last week I got a question about the narrow door. We discussed the narrow door as being Jesus kind of walking around sort of inviting people in, but at some point that door is going to close. And so the question I received was, when the narrow door closes, is that the end time, closing for everyone? Or does it refer to one's individual journey and there are only a finite number of opportunities to enter that narrow door? Great question. I love questions like this because I can kind of say, I don't know. But if we try to parse this out, I think that in almost every way, Jesus' stories, parables, metaphors, images, whatever you want to say, are multiple facet, you know, multi-layered. So you can say, yes, this is humanity. Yes, this is individual. It's kind of all of the above. As an individual person, let's take that, because that's perhaps a little more consumable. We are born and we die on earth, right? And for a very long time, most people have figured that that is your window 
to go through the narrow door, right? Can't really do anything before you're born. And once you're dead, you're out of luck. And so here's the window. Immediately in the first century, that may not have been the understanding. Because most of Jesus' followers thought that Jesus, is, Jesus was going to return their lifetime. Right? That is one of those concepts we might know, but it's going to be reminded. When Luke writes this story, there has been a shift in understanding what's supposed to happen with the second coming. In essence, these Gospels that we have in our Bible were written because the people who followed Jesus in real life were dying. And if they're dying and Jesus had not come back, then maybe the immediacy of his return was misunderstood. So they began to write the story down so it wasn't lost. It was only an oral tradition up to that point, which is why the Gospels in our Bible were basically the old, the last written books in the Bible, even though they come first in the New Testament. Because of that understanding, and because, like, I am going to guess Jesus hasn't come again, right, thus far, we're all here, um, which maybe we're all going to be here anyway, but, you know, at least, you know, we're going to go with Jesus hasn't come again. So, if that's the case, then perhaps that narrow door is a broader understanding than just the finite birth death of our own lives. That's when we get into the we don't know kind of area. As Episcopalians, we like to try to know, but we always start off, we start from the place of we may not know. And I think this is one of those questions that is fundamentally, can you be saved beyond this life? And the answer has to be we don't know, because we don't. And anyone who says they do does not. They're just simply making a guess. It could be an educated guess, but they don't know they are still alive. So for us, that narrow door is an opportunity that we certainly have now. But at some point, we are beyond the ability to access God. When that point comes, we don't know. But I believe that if we step back to something perhaps more fundamental, if I were to ask you, are people fundamentally good or bad? We would have lots of different answers. Most of Christian history has presumed that people are fundamentally bad. That is, in essence, the story of the fall. Right? If we go back to the Garden of Eden, that, that kind of mythic story is meant to explain why it is we have such a real capacity for doing bad stuff. Because we do. And that extrapolated into a theological idea that we're fundamentally bad and we are to be saved by God. Right? Not a wrong way to consider this. But I think that we should certainly at least consider that we are actually fundamentally good and lose our way. And it is Christ who brings us back. I have to admit, I just like that more. <laughs> I Maybe that's, you shouldn't base your theology on what you like, but you can argue either. 
from Scripture. And it's so easy to argue both that I don't know that it's important that, it, that you believe one or the other. But I think that that, I think we should all think on what we believe. Because it really does change the way we approach our Christian faith. Because if we are good at the start, how we treat other people will be radically different than if we think we're bad from the start. Here's an example. If we think that we are bad from the start and that we are only saved or made good because of Jesus, then it is very easy to discount any person who is not Christian. Yet if we think that we are fundamentally good and yet just by our humanity we get off track, and Christ is who brings us back to God, then any person who is not Christian can come back. And the way we approach people is radically different if we think that that good is there and that it's not totally absent without Christ. Yes? Okay. Hadn't planned on saying that, so I'm not sure if that was articulate, but... Just like with prayer, asking questions will clarify it over weeks. Okay, so we get back to the, the, the great banquet. Put simply, Jesus says that we should not do good for those who can repay us, but rather we do good for those who cannot. Jesus tells this story of a banquet and says, don't throw a party for the people who can throw a party for you. But instead, throw a party for the people who can't. So taken outside of that storyline of the party, when you do for others, do for others who cannot ever do for you. That's the point of the giving, is that it's not in order to receive. It is just gift. That's it. We can never be repaid. Those who can repay you could be your partners in the giving. But don't only give to those who can give back. That's a difficult idea because we tend to think of Christianity as this give and take, right? All of us, at least in some way, approach our faith as what can it do for us, right? Some might have approach it with a whole lot more expectation of what it can do for us than others. But in some way, we're all looking for our faith journey to do something for us. And so this is a hard but also accessible idea, right? We might articulate this in a missional way. If we look around this room, there isn't, I'm going to say, there was a person in this room you could do something for who could not do something back for you, right? It's a problem when our Christian community is only full of people who can repay us. Because if Jesus calls us to be the kind of giver that cannot be repaid, it's often not within our church community. That's kind of hard. 
Let's look at the way that Jesus sets this story up. Throwing a party, right? If you wanted to throw a dinner party, if you wanted to feed people who could not ever feed you in return, where would you even find them? I think for many people, even just getting them to your house to eat your food would be difficult. It's not that we have, none of us are dense enough to not think that there are people in Dallas who can't eat. But if I were to say to you, how about for dinner tonight, you invite all the people who cannot feed themselves nor could return the favor to you. Where? I mean, do you literally like go out under a bridge somewhere? And then if you do do that, is that feasible? Right? If now we're talking about is that safe? Right? And maybe we maybe we even in our heart of hearts think that's a good idea. But in my home, like, I'm gonna take some burritos down to the bridge, right? Maybe I'll cook it in my home and take it to somebody. But if you are you seriously saying like I'm gonna drive my car down somewhere and just invite people to ride back to my house with me? The answer is yes. And so we are invited to wrestle with that truth. How often do we actually do something for someone who cannot repay us? I look around this room and I know many of you do lots of things for your friends are supportive and kind, you pray, you gift, you do all sorts of things for your friends. It does not make you a bad Christian person. But if you are only doing things for your friends, then I think that there is an opportunity to expand beyond the people who could do for you as well. And that's where Jesus is pushing on us with this idea of the great benefit. Here's another way to consider this. We are invited to the kingdom party, right? Remember, this is God's kingdom we're talking about. If we're invited to that kingdom party and we have capacity to host our own party, what Christ is really inviting us into is to become partners, co-hosts of the kingdom party that he is beginning. And so as you think about the way in which you live out your faith, what I think we all have the capacity to do, not every person in the world, but the people here, us, we become co-hosts. We have seen a glimpse, maybe even more, of the wholeness of God's kingdom. And that generosity that we have received, that grace that we have received, we now get to reflect to others. And just as a side note, this is all about grace. And grace is such a pain in the butt because we get it when we have not received, we have not done anything to earn it. We have not, we don't deserve it. And yet, grace is given to us. We have the capacity to make sure other people know that grace is freely given to them too. And that way we do become those co-hosts of the banquet of God. All right, we're gonna get into the hard stuff here. 
So any questions? Yeah. Oh, that was the easy stuff. <laughs> questions or thoughts before we move on? Have 30 minutes. I was trying to have 30 minutes for the part. No? All right. The cost of discipleship. This is the stuff we do not like. All right? We don't like this stuff. Jesus says, starting in verse 26, all right, chapter 14, verse 26. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And skipping down, he says, So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. All right, we're getting into hard stuff now. Very important idea. Jesus is not really talking about your stuff. All right? He does not necessarily want you to give away your purse and your shoes and your coat and your all your sofas and antiques and art and whatever, right? Maybe. I'm going to kind of put that over there in the... He could be talking about that. Right? We could have this tangible idea of we have too much stuff. Get rid of your stuff. But that's not really the point. The point is that our stuff, our possessions, possessions is a great word because we can flip it. Our possessions too often possess us. That is really what he's saying here. It's not about having stuff. It's when that stuff controls you, when it becomes more important to you than the kingdom that Jesus offers us. That's the problem. And he goes so far as to say the stuff that can possess us and prevent us from living the kingdom life that he offers can even be our loved ones. We've already been here and done that in Luke already. All right, this is Jesus echoing the same idea again. We didn't like it last time. We're not going to like it this time. We love our people, right? We can all conceive. I mean, I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't think there's anybody in this room that honestly is in love with their stuff, right? We like our stuff. And plenty of us, you know, enjoy those things. But... Honestly, if we were just said, if we were to be told that our stuff was gone and yet our people remained, that's okay, right? I mean, it doesn't mean it's convenient. It would be hard. But really, we are all, I think, far enough down this line to say we'd be okay. But our people, this is hard because we think that the best of us is committing ourselves to those we love the most. And what Jesus is saying here is that that is not the ultimate. The ultimate is committing ourselves to the kingdom. It does not mean they are mutually exclusive. 
That is very important. Committing ourselves to the kingdom and still having our loved ones around us and living life with them together is absolutely possible. In fact, that's probably the way it should be. Yet, we all, many of us, have been in situations where the people we love have put us in impossible scenarios, super difficult situations where we have two, either two good choices, we can only make one, or we've got two bad choices and we have to make one. We've all been in those situations and it's terrible. When that happens, and we know that there is a kingdom principle or a kingdom reality that we don't choose, that is the kind of possessive that Jesus is talking about here. I think I have said this to you before. Have I talked about the prioritization that I do with couples about to get married? Have I said this before? Okay, even if I had, it's still okay. When I was counseling couples before marriage, at St. Michael we do group classes to prepare for marriage, which I think is great because it creates a community among those getting married. Um, so I haven't done this in a, in a couple years. But when I used to sit with couples one-on-one before they got married, one of the things I did for every single one of them, first off, I told them to plan their funeral and look at a, I read this years and years ago when I was getting married, um, a guy said, take a prenuptial agreement and just answer the questions, not to execute it or anything, but it is so thorough that there will be no accidental omissions of that information between one spouse and the other once you get married. So that was a great idea. So I tell them that. I tell them to plan their funerals, which, you know, 20-somethings are like, what? But have you ever said to your soon-to-be spouse whether you want heroic measures or not? Or when it's okay to pull a blood or not? Or where you want to be buried, right? Yo, you can die, like today. So I say that to 20-somethings. I'm certainly going to say it to you. If you've not planned your funerals, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound like that. Um, because many of you definitely look like you're in your 20s. Um, but... If you have not planned your funerals, hello. I mean, this is, that's not okay. I want you to hear me say, one friend or another, be one of the best things you can do for your family, for your people, is to have planned a funeral. Very infrequently, I'm able to go to a family who's lost a loved one and say, this is what they want to done. But when I can, oh gosh, it is the best immediate gift to give those you love. Because I can't tell you how many times I have sat with families who actually argue about whether it's right one or right two, or communion or not, or they didn't like that hymn, or they like that Are you kidding me? Like, your mom just died. Why is this how you're spending your time? Right? When she could have just told you two days ago what hymn she liked most. Right? So don't do that to your people. Okay, write it down. I don't care if it's like a piece of paper in a folder somewhere. It doesn't have to be formal. <coughs> do that. I've done it. You should do it. Okay. So go over, like, use a prenup, 
to have good conversations, plan your funeral. The other thing I always did was say, prioritize the roles of your life. And I would send them home. And I would say, when you come back next, I want the top four or five-ish. Don't give me 30. And don't give me two. Give me about five. Brother, son, father, husband, right? Those are the kind of roles I'm talking about. Professional could be there. Um, how do you prioritize the way that you live? And with one exception, I never had any couple put as number one disciple. One did, and this was a bride who was not raised in the Episcopal Church. Okay, so it just doesn't, it is such an assumption for many of us. Or worse, it is a learned cultural trait for many of us that we always start off with things like spouse, parent, child, you know, all important. But if disciple is not number one, we are not ordered properly. That's it. And if as a married couple, you do not start your life out together knowing that God is first for you both before each other, there could be big problems. The kind of humility and generosity that you have to reach in order to make God number one is part of this Christian journey, and it's important. All right, so I have 15 minutes to talk about one of my favorite people. Any questions or comments before we get there? How many of you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Good. If you don't, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a pastor, theologian, author, who, whatever, from the first half of the 20th century. The one book I want you to write down is called The Cost of Discipleship. So I have to, I have to start off. I'm already getting chills. I have to apologize. I might cry when I talk about him. So, how am I even starting? Good grief, are you serious? Okay. So, Bonhoeffer lived in the first half of the 20th century. He wrote lots of different texts. Some are quite dense and really take a lot of energy. This one doesn't. The Cost of Discipleship is just one of those books. If you've got a short list of books that you should read, this needs to be on your list. It's a remarkable book. And I want to tell you a little bit about him because it will give, unlike any other story I really know, short of Jesus, his story kind of brings in the reality of what it means to kind of live kingdom first. Those of you who know his story, you know ultimately what happens. But um, the quick, here's kind of a quick background. Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 in Germany to an aristocratic German family. Very well educated, parents were professionals, um, you know, elite circles, all that sort of stuff. 
When he was 14, he decided that he wanted to become a minister. Not well received by his family. But they sent him to university anyway, and he graduated from university, was able to go to New York to Union Theological Seminary to study as, as seminarian to then become a minister. As you might imagine with your history, when he finished in New York and went back to Germany to be a pastor, was about the same time that Hitler was coming to power, right? So this is post-World War I, depression in Germany, right? Economy was in shambles, and there was a vacuum that Hitler filled, right? And if we look back, I don't know how many of you have ever kind of read some of the early speeches that he gave. It, unfortunately, it sounds decent. Um, I mean, he was a nationalist. He wanted to shore up the economy. And he ultimately didn't want non-Germans to be in the country because he thought they were bringing down the social structure and the economy, right? These are ideas that at a point in time might sound plausible until, of course, you put the entire thing in context and then it's just horrific. But, you know, history is not finite. Uh, that's all I'll say. So, Bonhoeffer returns to Germany, and this is happening with Hitler, and so he begins to see that the rhetoric is not quite right. And he starts to work for pro-Christian ideals, not pro-nationalism. And he makes partnerships with other pastors in Germany to create what they called the Confessing Church. And in essence, what the Confessing Church said was, we are Christians first before we are Germans. And that was very countercultural, right? And imagine really, really owning that in America, right? To say, how many of us, how many people do we know that truly they're American Christians? They're not Christian Americans. Not many, right? Most people are going to be Christian Americans. Because America actually often matters more. Bonhoeffer was trying to balance this out. It is in that experience that he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, the book I just held up, where he tries to play with this idea of what does it actually mean for the first priority of your life to be God, right? To be follower of Christ, to be a disciple, and then everything else follows after it. Truly countercultural at that time as well. And he wrote this in Cost of Discipleship about grace, annoying grace. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And so he began to teach in Germany in underground seminaries. He began to try and, and help people to understand what it was that he was trying to teach. Then he was invited to go to America as a visiting professor. And this was the time that 
maybe some of you know or, or could potentially remember being told about of Reinhold Niebuhr. Remember Niebuhr? Niebuhr was, in some ways, maybe Billy Graham, but Niebuhr had a very interesting place in American culture in the 20th century. He was kind of America's theologian. He, he was, you know, Time Magazine and all this stuff all the time, years and years and years. And Americans looked to Niebuhr as kind of their ethical, moral, religious yardstick. And so when Bonhoeffer came over, he was, became good friends with Niebuhr and others, and they tried to convince him to seek asylum in America because things were going off the rails in Germany, right? And he had the capacity, because he was a highly skilled person, to seek asylum, right? In the same way that people like Einstein, you know, gained asylum and that, and that sort of stuff. But when he was here, after he taught for a few months, he decided to return. And this is what he wrote to Niebuhr. I've made my mistake, in, I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live, listen to this, I must live through this difficult period of national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. The community connection that he made with his people in Germany was profound. When he could have been safe in America, ultimately, he went back because he said, we are in this together. These are my people. And Christ is first, and I've got to take care of these people too. Soon after he returned to Germany, he began to plot with others about trying to overthrow Hitler. And in fact, one of the things that he ends up writing about later that he, he regretted was he began to plot his assassination. And he wrestled with this idea, which is a different discussion, about what it means to justify a killing, right? How bad can it be before you can actually justify it? And what he ultimately landed on was, you cannot justify it. However, you can also take the responsibility for the act, which is very interesting. We can talk about that later. Because of his plotting in Germany, he ended up being arrested, and he spent about two years in prison where he really wrestled with, where is God in this, right? How could God, did God allow it? How could God allow it? And he began to write. And here are some of the quotes, and this is, this is some stuff that's almost impossible to just listen to, but I just want to say it to you, and we can always talk about it later. He wrote things like this. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way, in which God is with us and helps us. The Bible makes quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. The Bible directs humanity to God's powerlessness and suffering, because it's only through the suffering 
that God can truly help us. Another passage he writes, To be a Christian does not mean to be religious in a particular way, to make something of oneself, a sinner or a penitent or a saint, on the basis of some method or other, but to be a person, to be the type of person, the type of person that Christ creates us to be. And it is not a religious act that makes the Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God in the secular life. In other words, God knows suffering. It is because God knows suffering that God can be with us when we suffer. So very much like the discussion we had on prayer, it is not that God acts on us with suffering, but God also does not prevent because the suffering is part of the experience. If God prevented it, then our humanity would be undermined. And it is our humanity that gives us the capacity to love God in total. And so God walks with us through that suffering in order to get to true love. On April 9, 1945, just a month before Germany surrendered, after two years of being imprisoned, Bonhoeffer was hanged with six other, sorry. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to read the last of this. Um, let me skip ahead. So, one of the, he was at a concentration camp with other people in the resistance. The doctor at the camp, about 10 years later, wrote about what he witnessed that day. And he said, the prisoners were taken from their cells, and the verdicts of the court martial read out to them. That helps me not cry. <laughs> Through the half-open door, in one room of the hut, I, the doctor at the camp, saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds, and he wrote, in almost 50 years, that I have worked as a doctor, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Why I think this is such a powerful example for us is there are few moments when we get the opportunity to live out our discipleship with such strength or our faithfulness in God's love of us with such commitment. And so, to close today with chapter 14, this idea of the cost of discipleship. At every stage of life in the world, right, the church, us, we're given an opportunity to respond to the world with the strength of Christ, to speak that Christian identity 
to the power structures of the world in a way that claims the truth of Christ. We have in our past examples of moments in time when it seemed crystal clear what the Christian response should be. If I were to ask you today, where do you see the need for that kind of response now? We may have varied opinions, but it does not change that we are still called to be that voice and to claim that power and that righteousness when the world gets off the rails. There are moments that we can all recall just in the last year or two when things have not perhaps been as bad as they could be, but where there are clearly efforts made, often on our behalf, that we know are not grace-filled or truly loving. That's on us to change. And it might mean that we let go of every possession to do it. But that is the cost of discipleship. 11.30. Thank you all. Have a good week.